Let's start with prayer this morning before we climb into our message. I want to pray for a local church, or I mean local as in probably the closest church geographically to where we are, church building, I should qualify, a North Baptist Church. Let's pray for Kelly Regan, Regan and his family and pray for this church that ministers to this side of town. <clears throat> Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning, thankful that we can gather, thankful that uh, uh, you've allowed for a beautiful day, that you've provided a facility. Lord, we're thankful for um, this park, thankful for the families and the houses that are nearby. And Lord, we want to pray for this church that's so close to here and this people that gather each week, North Baptist Church. We want to pray for Kelly Regan. We pray first for his worship, Lord. I pray that he is enjoying you and that it's invading his marriage. Pray that it's spilling over into the pulpit. Lord, that you're gathering and drawing and leading and guiding a people. Lord, I pray that that people is a sweet aroma to this side of town. Lord, we pray that your name will be enjoyed, that your gospel will be understood and savored on this side of town. Lord, we pray that you have sheep as yet undiscovered over here, that they will hear the gospel preached and taught through North Baptist or some other church or the people of God gathering, possibly even through Crosspoint this morning. Lord, we know that you own all property, and we want to step on this property this morning enjoying you in Christ's name. Lord, we are excited about this time that we're about to spend together closing out the book of John. Thankful for what you've done in and through us and on us and to us all for your glory in the last seven years and four months. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to the book of John, chapter 20. <clears throat> Can y'all hear me back in the back, back here? I'll make sure I'm... Okay. <clears throat> this is a conclusion sermon, although we're not quite really finished with the book of John. There are going to be two more sermons... I anticipate two more uh, a couple weeks from now from chapter 21. But the book really ends at chapter 20, or concludes, I should say, at chapter 20. Chapter 21 is what's called an epilogue. It's sort of like the end of a, a movie where you see the, after the, just before the credits, at the end of the movie, the credits that say what happened to, to the main characters based on a true story sort of movie. That's what chapter 21 is, telling what's happened to the main characters. But the book technically concludes at the end of chapter 20. So today we're sort of ending a seven-year, four-month journey through the book of John. So let's just climb right into the text. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Having established at this point that Christ is indeed God, through Thomas's testimony of Christ as Lord and God, John is concluding his book with a statement of purpose. Here's why I wrote this book. Over the course of the book, he's detailed eight signs. It's really been focused in seven that sort of stand as a group. And then the eighth, and being really the mountaintop sign. 
Those signs that we've considered over the past seven years are turning water to wine at Cana. Healing of a nobleman's son. Healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Feeding of the 5,000. Walking on the water. Healing of the blind man. And then calling Lazarus from death to life. And then the final one, the one that we've been considering the last few months, was his own resurrection. John, as he concludes this book, he says, I've written and detailed these things for a purpose. It's a henna clause, those things that we enjoy seeing for the purpose of, in order that, so that we can have belief in Jesus as God. And that the outcome of that belief will be life. This is a life book. It's not a history book. John could have included many other things. In fact, at the end of the next chapter, he says, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But John says, I wrote these things. I explained and detailed these accounts for a specific purpose. So that you would see Jesus as God and that believing in him, you would have life in his name. This is the magnum opus on the good news in our Bibles. This week's sort of been nostalgic for me. I went back and pulled out my sermon that began this series. It's from January, mid-January 2004. The sermon began with sort of a map of where we'd been. The very first sermon that we preached here, I think was July or August of 2003, was from the book of Ephesians on making the most of your time for the days are evil. And after we were called, a couple weeks later, we started preaching through the Ten Commandments. So that's ten sermons, one sermon per commandment. The sermon after that was from the book of Galatians, where the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. We considered that we spent 10 weeks examining the law. We realized that that's a tutor that points us and leads us somewhere. So in the 13th sermon in January, we began in the book of John. I wrote then, you know, it's funny when you look back at something that you wrote years ago, it's sort of, you're sort of scared to go back and read it. It's sort of like an old journal or a diary you're like, man, I was such a goober then. What did I think then? I go back and look at some of the early sermons, and I'm actually surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised at what God was showing us as a people then. Here's what I wrote then and what we preached and what we enjoyed then. That we spent 10 weeks considering the problem of the law and sin, our desperate situation with sin. And that we would go to John to understand the solution to our problem. I said then, and something that we said over and over again over the book of John, that it's so simple that a toddler can wade in it, yet it's so complex that elephants can swim in it. And we've waded and we've swam together for the last seven years and four months. I said the book of John will be a new journey It will be antibiotic and dressing for those wounds that we now recognize from our time in the Ten Commandments and that we'll treat our wounds with good medicine, not with Band-Aids. 
I could preach on marriage, our money, our power, our jobs, our family. And while all of these things are important and we may visit those at times, if we find the biblical perspective on those and ignore the core of faith, then we treat gaping wounds with band-aids. So this was the plan seven years, four months ago. Instead, we're going to work from the inside out. We'll watch the symptoms take care of themselves as we get up next to the changer and watch him change us in a way that's supernatural. We're going to come back to this sermon manuscript later with some final thoughts. But I thought it interesting that the Lord has seen that through in the last seven years and four months that we would treat not the symptoms, but we would go to the core of what it meant to follow Christ. And he's done that in the last seven years and four months. And the product of that is what I'm calling the title of this sermon is Signs of Life. If John wrote these things though, so that we may believe in Jesus as the Christ and we may have life in his name, then I want us for the next few minutes, just a few minutes, to consider the signs of life at Cross Point Fellowship. I've broken it down really into three sections. The first having to do with children, the second having to do with families, and the third having to do with church. First, children. Eight years ago when Crosspoint began, there were five families that came from Ridgecrest Baptist Church, and one of those families was the Collins family. Many of you know or remember Jeff Collins, the Texas Ranger, now living and stationed out in Lubbock. He was one of our elders, one of our first group of elders And he was one of this original planting team eight years ago. Jeff shared with me that he walked through every room in that building praying that they would be filled with life and filled with new, little, bitty, tiny life children. Right now we have 11 babies in infant one. And from what I understand, as far as we know, we have seven more families that are expecting Children, many children have been born while we journeyed together in the book of John. It makes me think of the creation account where earth was teeming with life. When you walk through the building on a Wednesday night after Bible study or you walk through the building on a Sunday morning after corporate worship, I think most of us will agree that it teems with life. Lots of little tiny life. Think about a time together in John and think about the number of children that have been adopted during our time. Signs of life, children adopted from the opposite side of the earth and children adopted from down the street, putting the gospel on display through the testament of adoption. I thought about the signs of life of little bitty children, little gardens tended to with well-sown seed and gentle weeding in the last eight years. Kids who I have seen firsthand understand what God did for us in Christ. The last year or so, I had the privilege of teaching the third through sixth graders. And this last Wednesday night, we finished up, up chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. And I considered this verse, I thought it was profound. This verse in chapter 12 says, And when your children, is speaking of the Passover... And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, the remembrance of the Passover? You shall say it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. 
when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. I asked a group of third through sixth graders why these kids would ask, what is this Passover thing? The first answer was, because they don't know. I said, exactly, what else? The second answer was, because they want to know. I said, yes. And I considered at that very moment that I sat with third through sixth graders who wanted to know what was done for us in our Passover lamb. That a hundred yards from me or however far the distance is from the treehouse to the sanctuary, that adults were being equipped to answer that question. What an awesome reality. Those things have happened to us while we journeyed together in John. Children can articulate the gospel. Children who know what their parents are doing and what their parents are readying them for. Children with teeth cut on God's word and his story. Also during our time in John, there's been new faith among many of those children. Many of you have had the sweet, crazy, awesome privilege of baptizing your own children. Myself included. All three of our children were baptized during our journey together in John. Signs of life. Now regarding families, God has brought new families to this body. Man, I wish you could have seen this thing eight years ago. It's five families, Christy and our crew. And then the Wade stroll in, the first family that I know of that joined Crosspoint. Man, it was just a little huddle. And to see what God has done in the last eight years, he's brought families to this body, families who enjoy Jesus and are following Christ together. And he's brought new faith, new families, families that, I mean new, new believing families. Families that we found over behind GCS or that God directed us to. Families that are now walking in faith and who are sitting among us. Grown men who I had the crazy privilege of baptizing who are following Christ and leading their families in faith. Signs of life. Also during our time in John, not only has there been new faith, but there's been faith sustained in families. And I will count our families as one of those Years of good seed sown and consistent nourishment. Engage weekly like manna gathered on the ground and consumed. Marriages have been born during our time in John. I've had the privilege of doing a couple of weddings. I know right now of a few marriages in the making. And I can tell you too, firsthand experience, that marriages have been sustained in the book of John. And I'm speaking firsthand, too, of mine and my wife's. We have been nourished and groomed and shaped and honed during our time in John. Signs of life. God has used this journey together in John to hopefully put the gospel on display better through the likes of Ben and Christy and the likes of you and your husband or wife. Also, during our time in John regarding families is... We've had friends or family members buried. John 11 equipped us as a body to say goodbye to a good friend, Keith McCord, a young father, 30 years old, passed away from cancer with his six-month-old in the room. We watched him die well. And we were equipped for it 
shaped for it, groomed for it through the book of John, specifically John 11. Ironically, the book where God calls, God the Son calls Lazarus from death to life. What an appropriate place for us to be as a body. God had his fingerprints all over that. Also during our time in John, he has raised up men to lead their families. Shepherds. Eight years ago, the picture coming in the front door or the side door of the sanctuary there, oftentimes was a woman with a Bible well eaten. Bookmarks, doilies, pens, markers, everything that you can imagine sticking out of this book that she treasured with a nice book cover over it, Bible cover, and a man with his hands in his pockets. That was the norm eight years ago. During our time in John, God has raised up men to take responsibility for leading and shepherding their families. Men who have Bibles now that are well used. Signs of life during our time together in John. Also during our time together in John, regarding the church, this sort of bleeds over from families. They're families that have been equipped and deployed in the book of John. To Kazakhstan, to Jordan, possibly families who are being raised up now to go to Rowlett or Teopisca or Sulphur Springs. We don't even know at this point what's incubating. But you've been nourished and fed on the book of John. We've also had families that have deployed to commerce. Families that have moved from Greenville to be part of a new work in commerce. That equipment time, that equipping time and sending time took place during our journey together in John. There are families that have been equipped and sent to the Rafa Clinic to volunteer that have been equipped and sent to many unnamed ministries that will never have a name in your neighborhood to a widow or a single mother or to an unbelieving family. They will never have a name for that. But God's used John to equip you to do that. Deacons have been deployed and directed during our time in John. God has raised up faithful men caring for and tending to this body as the hands of Christ. And these men have touched me. And these men, and God has, God through this work of these deacons, has touched many of you. That happened through our time together in John. Those are signs of life. Elders were equipped and raised up. All of our elders at Crosspoint were called during our time together in John. And I cannot tell you how many times our journey together in John invaded our elder meetings. And invaded our, and informed our conversation. Ministries were shaped and honed during our time in John. As we see that Father, Son, and Spirit are perichoretically involved, interpenetrating, interconnected, blurry. We realize that's the picture of the church ministering. Blurred together, interconnected, interinvolved in each other's lives. That the long arm of evangelism is a people that are part of each other's lives in a meaningful way. Now, we have not arrived when it comes to reaching the community. But the reality is we've spent almost eight years together in the magnum opus on evangelism. I wonder if there's a church in the world that's better equipped to share the good news than this church having spent almost eight years in the magnum opus on the good news. God has equipped us to engage with the good news. 
tell you something else has happened during this time is method has given way to message. I can't tell you how many conversations that Scott and I had early on, eight years ago, seven years ago, that had to do with message. Had to, or had, had to do with method, excuse me, methodology. And in the last seven years and four months, he's taken that conversation on methodology and he's turned it more to message. God's reminded us through this book of John that we are messengers, not practitioners. Method matters, but message will always trump method. Message will always trump method. We've learned in the last seven years and four months that we are to turn the message loose and to let it do. It's people working, people building. It's marrow penetrating. It's God exposing work because that's what the word does. In the last seven years and four months, our Bibles have become understood. We haven't been micro-focused in John. John has been an escort to Leviticus. Dusty old books like Leviticus. Remember that? It's been an escort to the Exodus. It's been an escort to Revelation and everything in between. God has been thoroughly enjoyed during our time together in John. Seeing what he did for us in Christ, God has been enjoyed. Understanding his heart in a whole chapter worth of his prayer, God has been enjoyed. Understanding the riches of our salvation in the passion narrative, God has been enjoyed. Understanding our victory in a vacant tomb, seeing his hands and his side, we declare with Thomas, my Lord and my God. I thought it'd be good to end the morning this way or end the message with another excerpt from this initial sermon in the book of John. Seven years ago, four months, we considered this as a church. Luke and I spent the last few days hunting in South Texas, 30 miles north of the border with no electricity or running water considering the godness of Jesus. I studied this passage. This first sermon was on the passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the passage we considered seven years and four months ago. I studied this passage by lantern. As I studied, I thought of the countless others who've studied these very words by lantern over the ages. I thought of those who studied it by candlelight. I thought of John pinning these words with his aged hand, maybe looking at a candle as he wrote of the light of the world. I thought about those countless students over the ages hovering over a timeless, unchanging message. Our last night here, we sat on the front porch of this old house listening to rain hit the tin roof and watched the clouds roll back to reveal a magnificent sky. As I looked up and saw stars that are often hidden by city light, I thought of the countless solar systems that go with each star. As I looked at those stars, I realized that this babe in a manger, this man who turned water into wine, this man who healed the lepers, who made the lame to walk, who opened the eyes of the blind, who walked on water, who submitted to a cross and three days later stepped out of a tomb, was there when the stars were flung into place. In the beginning when the stars were hung, 
He was there. When Job heard his family perished, Jesus was already there. He already was. When the rains came and Noah faithfully built his boat, Jesus already was. Jesus watched Methuselah's mommy change his drawers. And 969 years later, he saw him die. The word was there when Abraham led his little boy Isaac up Mount Moriah and heard Isaac ask, My father, behold, the fire and the wood, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He was there when Abraham responded, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Jesus was there when Moses parted the Red Sea. He was there when David fought Goliath and when Saul grew jealous of a shepherd boy. Jesus was there when Solomon dedicated his temple. Jesus was there when the judges ruled Israel. He was there when Daniel swung open his window to pray knowing he would be thrown to lions. When Mary, startled by the angel of the Lord with the news of her role in the birth of Christ, he was there. Then when the Holy Spirit conceived in Mary's womb, divinity stepped into humanity. Then he was here for 33 years. And since the tomb was vacated, he's been, ever since, seated in victory. It's this Jesus we've enjoyed for the past seven years and four months. We can marvel together with Thomas, our Lord and our God, alive and seated. I shared an illustration on this first sermon, January of 2004, that I think I would like to share this morning as preparation for the supper. Take this picture I'm about to share with you, this contrast, and realize it's unspeakably far from what God has actually done for us in Christ. I want you to imagine for a minute that you love stink bugs. You know, I haven't seen many stink bugs around here, but I grew up in central Louisiana where stink bugs were everywhere. So I'm hoping that some of y'all, most of y'all know what a stink bug is. It's this weird looking creature that the minute you bump him, he lets off this aroma that you, makes you regret that you bumped him. Stink bugs were everywhere where I grew up, so I know exactly the aroma that I'm talking about. Would you imagine for a moment that you love stink bugs? And you love stink bugs so much that you hate the thought of a stink bug dying. Why you love them, who knows? But you just don't want them to die. Aside, you've gotten beyond the gross smell, and you love them, and you don't, don't want to see them die. Although there's grounds for their death, because they do stink after all. So you lover of stink bugs, have the opportunity, if you can call it that, to become a stink bug in order to save some of them. First of all, it's crazy that you would love them. But then it's crazy that you would take advantage of an opportunity to become a stink bug. You're a person with a car, with clothes, with a family, with a human body, with emotions that go along with humanity. And yet you're going to give up all of that, all the greatness of being a human, and you're going to go be a stink bug. You love them enough to stink with them. And then the way that some of them might live is only if some of them could gang up on you and kill you and torture you. 
How could anyone love stink bugs so much? It's really unthinkable. I want you to realize that that's what Christ has done for us in the gospel. That's what God has done for us in Christ. I remember sharing this illustration seven years, four months ago, and I remember thinking somebody's going to have a difficult time with humans, humankind being compared to stink bugs. But I want you to realize the distance between humankind and stink bugs is not even, is unspeakably shy of the distance between holiness and godness and fallen humanity. The marvel that anyone would become a stink bug just to save a few can hopefully give us some sort of glimpse of what God did for us in Christ. Where he took on flesh, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And the word was nailed to a cross for our sake. And the word now lives seated at the Father's right hand. Let's take the supper together. Deacons, can you help me with this? I'm going to pray. And the deacons will help distribute it as our band comes back up here. God, we are thankful for what you've done for us in Christ. We recognize that in Christ you have condescended far lower than man could condescend to a stink bug. Lord, in Christ we realize that just in him taking on flesh and him living among us, a lowly carpenter's son, wearing sandals and being dirty and then being nailed to a cross and bearing our sin should cause us to marvel. Lord, in the last seven years, you've created a people that marvel. We're surrounded by the signs of life that you've provided, that you've fostered, that you've spoken into existence through this book. There's no man, there's no scheme, there's no design that can take responsibility for it. It's been your way through the weekly engagement of your story through John's gospel. Lord, we love you. I thank you for what you've done for me and for my family through this time. I thank you for what you've done for this church. I look forward to what you have in store through Hebrews. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. That's what we're doing today as the new Israel. And when you come to the land that your Lord, the Lord will give you as he's promised you, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians. But he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's take and eat. God shows his love for us in that while we were still stink bugs, Christ died for us. Be okay with that. Be okay with that illustration because you can't enjoy the gospel unless you get that.
Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Let's take and drink. Thanks. Y'all have a great morning.